With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. The California clean peach sector is in the best overall position in years. Customer demand for California clean peaches is exceeding current farm production. That was the overview offered recently at the annual meeting of the California Canning Peach Association in Sacramento. Association President and CEO Rich Hudgens told the gathering, quote, Our industry is in the best overall position that it has been for many years. However, speakers at that meeting advised growers to be cautious on decisions to plant more acreage. They said planting and over-contracting mistakes in 2016 and 2017 created several years of oversupply. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. Olive Industry and Spanish Olive Duties The California Table Olive Industry commends a U.S. decision that places California olive growers as a priority. The U.S. recently decided to implement the World Trade Organization's ruling on Spanish olives in a way that upholds U.S. law and safeguards a fair U.S. marketplace while also complying with the WTO rules. Michael Silvera, who's the chairman of the Olive Grower Council of California, says, quote, The U.S. government has confirmed again and again over the last five years that the Spanish olive industry is still benefiting from extraordinary European Union subsidies and is dumping its ripe olives in the U.S. market. He added, quote, if it weren't for the U.S. government ongoing anti-dumping and countervailing duty orders on Spanish olives, American table olive production and hundreds of family farmers and allied American jobs would be in serious jeopardy. The U.S. government's AD and CVD orders on Spanish olives have given California olive farmers the time they need to reinvest in modern farming technologies, including with the One Million Tree Initiative. That's to help transition the industry to modern, drought-friendly acreage. This decision has given growers time to transition to modern ways of farming drought-friendly acreage. Dennis Burson, a California olive grower and the vice president of the Field Operations and Industry Affairs for Musco Family Olive Company, praised the administration and industry's congressional delegation for defending the California olive industry, saying, quote, The olive case, together with our industry-led investments, is a great example of how to break the cycle of unfair foreign trade practices and rebuild a high-quality, environmentally-friendly American production and American jobs. And now here's Brian German with back-to-back agricultural reports. Many growers in the Monterey area that were impacted by flooding issues are expecting a 45- to 60-day delay to normal production timelines. Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau, Norm Groot, explained that many growers are waiting to complete testing requirements as part of overall food safety compliance. However, even as the overall damage continues to be tallied, there were many areas of the county that were not hit quite as hard with flooding and are able to move forward with normal planting. We have a lot of fields here that were not impacted by flooding or standing water, and so a lot of those fields will still continue with their first plantings and can move forward with their planting schedules at this point. So it's hard to say what that's going to mean to the marketplace, but obviously with 20,000 acres impacted now, um, it probably is a little bit of a delay that we're going to see in those first plantings here in February and probably early March. Agricultural trade was a central topic at a recent Senate Ag Committee hearing. 
Undersecretary of Agriculture for Trade Alexis Taylor explained the value of developing export markets, citing a study that found for every dollar spent on market development, export value increased by more than $24. Taylor also highlighted the Indo-Pacific region as having a tremendous amount of potential for U.S. ag products. I think this is a very exciting part of the world. They have growing middle classes, they have growing economies, and they have a generally young population. When I think about Vietnam, for instance, they're projected to add 5 million middle class households over the next five years. So we have the ability today to build trading relationships, to help our producers get into those markets, to build those long-term relationships and create lifelong consumers of American food and agriculture products. I think that's a huge market potential. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the AgNet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of AgNet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's AgNet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, a subcommittee of the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure took a closer look at the Biden administration's Waters of the U.S. rule during a hearing on the matter this week. Newly elected California Congressman John Duarte serves on that committee and shared his experience with WOTUS with his fellow lawmakers. My family and I were prosecuted um, robustly by the Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Justice. Uh, American Farm Bureau literally put up the Duarte defense account. I believe I recall meeting Mrs. Bodine somewhere in the process <laughs> here in the Capitol. And it became a very much a flashpoint for American farmers and Clean Water Act jurisdictions. At the end of the day, having tilled four to seven inches deep, wetlands, features, as small as 16 square feet, no larger than an acre, that had been planted many times before, I had the Department of Justice threatening me and suggesting to a judge, a federal judge, that my family be fined 28 to $40 million in penalties and restoration and mitigation costs. The Obama rule, when it came out, Farm Bureau took a look at it and started analyzing it and mapping it nationwide. Some states were 95% jurisdictional wetlands of their total surface area under the Obama WOTUS. Now we're talking about case-by-case -case analysis by field agents. Dave Owen, professor of law and faculty director of scholarly publications at UC College of the Law in San Francisco, was one of the witnesses. He is in support of the current law. The rule does a better job with statutory text. The key text that we are interpreting here is the waters of the United States. Under any plausible reading of that text, it would include aquatic features that have water and that are permanently present. 
That includes streams, that includes wetlands, that includes ponds, even if they don't have a permanent connection to some larger water body. The new rule respects that text, and in contrast, the previous rule mangled statutory text by creating some strange distinctions between waters that are covered and waters that are not. So in summary, the new rule is a better interpretation of statutory text, it is better for the economy, it is better for states, and most importantly, it is better for water quality. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Representative Duarte pushed back on one of Owen's comments. We mentioned, Mr. Owen, your, uh, your vision of a Army Corps of Engineers local field agent having grown up in the area and being familiar with what was going on. Well, my field agent grew up in Southern California. He had a five-county territory that he was set to serve. He thought I was tilling the ground 30 inches deep by his own deposition that turned out to be, in fact, four to seven inches deep. When I asked him to come to the field and take a look, he didn't have time and didn't respond. When they sent me a cease and desist order, the following February, we requested a, a hearing and were kicked up to enforcement. We then went to the Pacific Legal Foundation who saw the cease and desist order as a fairly dire offense to our Fifth Amendment due process rights since we simply wanted to harvest our wheat and couldn't get direction as to whether that would be permitted or not under the cease and desist order and were supported in the federal court until a retaliatory case was filed against, against us for destruction of wetlands. So I recite that and I just um, wanna make sure that we are on record that this is anything but a small nuisance or a small threat to American farmers. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, you know, there's still a lot to learn about avian influenza, especially with all the issues across the country. With more on that story, here's Gary Crawford. It goes by several names, this virus. The most scientifically correct is highly pathogenic avian influenza. Some folks shorten that to HPAI. Some of us refer to it as just avian influenza. Most of us just call it bird flu. Whatever the name, the virus, this one, it's a nasty one if you happen to be a chicken or a turkey. And it causes very, very severe disease in chickens and turkeys. If it's uh, left unchecked, as in if it just spreads throughout a flock, it will approach 100% mortality in that flock. That's Dr. David Swain. He directs the USDA Southeastern Poultry Lab in Athens, Georgia. He and his team have been tracking and studying the avian influenza virus since about 1996 when it first began showing up in migratory waterfowl and domestic poultry flocks across Europe, Asia, and Africa. Wild birds were the culprits spreading the virus, even though many of the birds were not exhibiting any signs of being sick at all. Eventually, migratory birds brought the virus to the U.S., and the outbreak in 2015 resulted in the loss of 50.5 million birds. Finally, the virus seemed to disappear when summer came along, and things have been quiet with avian influenza pretty much until last fall, when bird flu started causing problems in Europe. Because of the outbreaks in Europe that were going on last fall, last summer, we were already talking with uh, the poultry industries about, hey, you need to be preparing your poultry farmers that this virus has a the possibility of coming, you know, into the United States. And it did, and this time it continued on through the summer, and the outbreaks are still being reported. Bird losses have broken records at over 58 million so far, and this is despite the excellent work by poultry producers in so-called biosecurity. And Dr. Swain says... Each individual farm, we have to just practice the best we can on the biosecurity side. 
keep people off the farms, do all the disinfection from equipment going in and out of the farm so we can minimize that chance of the virus being spread around by you know, our agricultural activities. As we said before, this past summer's heat doesn't seem to have stopped this virus in this outbreak, and maybe it's adapted to the hot weather. And so the question many of us are asking, is this virus going to let up and eventually disappear, or is it here to stay? We do not know that the outcome of that is going to take time and some science and some close observation to see, is it here to stay or is it transitory? Meanwhile, researchers continue to learn more and more about the virus, and they continue to work on a practical way to vaccinate flocks against it. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. And, of course, USDA's cattle inventory report as of January 1 did place the total number of cattle and calves at 89.3 million head. That's pretty much consistent with trade expectations, but the decline comes as cattle producers face fourth consecutive year of contraction within the cattle industry. And so, beef production is anticipated to be 6.5% lower this year than last year. And thus, economists are saying that, all things considered, prices this year are likely to exceed those of the last couple of years. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. It's a break for the picky bank, just in time for the big game. That's coming up on This Land of Hours. Retail prices for chicken wings have been trending lower in recent months and in time for national sporting events such as the Super Bowl and the college basketball championship tournaments. Previously, a combination of limited supplies and strong demand led to a historic run-up in wholesale and retail prices. Wholesale chicken wing prices reached a peak of $3.25 per pound in late May of 2021, but retail prices continue to climb. At the start of the 2022 March Madness basketball tournament, the national average retail feature price was estimated at $4.29 per pound. Nearly a year later, and just ahead of the 2023 Super Bowl and basketball tournament, the national average feature price is down nearly $1.70 per pound to $2.62. The average wholesale price in December was $0.89 per pound, down more than $2.50 per pound from the 2021 peak. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. One of the perils of having an oral farm lease is uncertainty over what happens if either the landlord or the tenant dies during the term of the lease. When a landlord or a tenant dies during the term of a farm lease, what happens if the lease is oral? If the landlord dies, the outcome is simple. The landlord's heirs step into the shoes of the deceased landlord. That means, for example, that they must follow state law to terminate the tenant if that is desired. But things are more complicated if the tenant dies. In that case, if the lease is a crop share or livestock share lease, many courts will say that the lease ends upon the tenant's death. But if it's a cash lease, the lease doesn't end when the tenant dies. The rationale is that the landlord contracted for the tenant's personal services, and that's not relevant if a cash lease is involved. One complication when a landlord dies occurs if the landlord didn't own the farm outright in fee simple, but rather held a life estate. While the lease continues, who gets the landlord's share of crops or livestock or any cash rent? It depends on state law. 
In some states, the rent amount passes to the landlord's heirs. In other states, it goes to the holders of the remainder interest. Sometimes that might be the same persons, but often it isn't. Of course, you can avoid all these issues by getting that farm lease in writing. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. The 2023 USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum is approaching February 23rd and 24th, and World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski says it is notable in that we are moving back to in-person this year, so we're going to be back at the Crystal City Gateway Marriott. The return to in-person activity at Arlington, Virginia comes after two years of a virtual forum format due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, there will also be the opportunity for people to participate virtually if they are just simply unable to make it in person. This year's theme for the Ag Outlook Forum is U.S. Agriculture, Seeds of Growth Through Innovation, with several sessions featuring a focus on developing a more prosperous and sustainable ag sector through technological and innovative advances. There are the traditional sessions focused on commodity outlooks, and the Thursday morning session contains familiar elements such as a presentation on the 2023 Agricultural, Economic, and Foreign Trade Outlook given by Dr. Seth Meyer, our chief economist. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack's keynote address and participation in a panel. A focus on agricultural labor. That is an important topic for agriculture, and the secretary will be leading a panel discussion as well as the annual plenary panel, although for 2023, panel is plural. Creating value and economic opportunity through climate smart commodities. And also, there is going to be a panel on strategies for more and better markets. Other highlights of the 2023 Ag Outlook Forum include the Thursday evening dinner speaker, Dr. Karen St. Germain from NASA, Director of the Earth Science Division, who is going to give some of her perspective on ways that data from NASA and satellite Earth observation can help to improve better understanding our global food supply and crop production patterns. And the Friday morning dialogue between the Agriculture Secretary and European Union Ag Commissioner. Further details about and registration for this year's USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum is available online at www.usda.gov OCE slash ag outlook forum. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. USDA has some interesting data that shows Super Bowl Sunday is great for the food industry. No surprise there. Their data shows it's second only as far as food consumption to Thanksgiving. Consider these numbers. 
1.2 billion chicken wings are eaten on Super Bowl Sunday, 11.2 million pounds of potato chips, 8.2 million pounds of tortilla or dipping chips. And a favorite dip, of course, guacamole. USDA says 140 million pounds of avocados are purchased to make that delicious guacamole. And you have to have something to wash down all that great food. Beer is, to the rescue, 325 million gallons on Super Bowl Sunday. But not everyone drinks beer, of course, so there's an estimated $2.3 million spent on soda, drink mix, or just plain water. The data doesn't show how much is spent on Alka-Seltzer or antacids on Monday. Our friends at AgriLiquid hope you have a safe Super Bowl Sunday. And looking ahead to the planting season, check out agriliquid.com for all the great products. By the way, USDA estimates $85 is spent per person for food on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day, a profitable week ahead. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. Now, I've been getting lots of requests for Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, Everybody wants to know how to properly do a brisket. And brisket is one of those incredibly tough meats but when handled with care and done with lots of love this is a phenomenal phenomenal cut of beef and more importantly it's very cheap good brisket doesn't cost a lot of money i only use prime grade brisket and that's all i hope everyone else is using for this recipe now if you're going to have your butcher clean your brisket for you if you're new to brisket or if you're new to butchering your own meat that's not a bad idea however it's not that difficult at all. All we're doing is just really trimming down some fat, cleaning up some edges. And as you can see in the picture attached to this recipe, it's not very difficult at all to pull off a great brisket. Now what I'm going to do is I like to take my brisket and cut it into two pieces. And the reason I do that is most people have smaller smokers or smaller grills. So it's easier to work with if we do one piece at a time. Uh, not only that, uh, you can cook half of this brisket store it away. You could even age this brisket and then cook it at a different time. Now what I'm going to do uh, is cook my brisket straight up and this is a 16 to 17 hour cook time. So it does take a lot of time. So if you're planning to do this for Super Bowl Sunday, you want to make sure uh, that you're going to start this late Saturday night so it's ready for you perfectly in time for the game. Now, I'm going to season this starting first with a good layer of Cajun spice. This is so important, a nice good blackening spice to bring all the flavor together, some dry chive, some dry garlic as well, and I'm going to also use cracked black pepper over the top of this. It should almost look kind of like pastrami because that's really what it what it is. Then I'm going to top this with some maldon Uh, sea salt. Now these are flaky salts that give a good crunch to the brisket once it's ready to go and I promise you you're going to be glad uh, that you did this. This is phenomenal. I'm going to put it into my smoker 225 degrees and I am going to begin this process. Like I said we're going to time for 16 hours ahead of time. This is so important because once we start this brisket 
it's it's a go. We can't do anything else to this but get it going. I'm going to smoke it for four hours at 225 degrees. I want to put the the fat side down so that way it gets a good, good black color on it. This is very, very important. After our four-hour cook, I'm going to wrap it in wax paper and I'm going to let it sit now and I'm going to put my oven to 215 degrees on the highest rack and we're going to let this brisket cook for another uh, 12 to 13 hours. I promise you, when you get ready to cut this thing on Super Bowl Sunday, it is going to be an absolute hit. Make sure to look at the recipe attached to this. And for this and many more of my Untamed recipes, tips, tricks, and all things Untamed, go to www.ajhtheuntamedchef.com. And as always, this is Albert J. Hernandez, the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Yes, it's hard to believe, but it is Super Bowl time once again. And this year, it's estimated over 43 million U.S. homes will be hosting Super Bowl parties with those special football foods. Chicken wings and some nachos, oh, yeah. some salsa, all of those good foods. That's Meredith Carruthers with the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which is on her jersey printed there. And we'll give you that number in a minute. Of course, Super Bowl parties can range in size from three or four people to a hundred or more. But Meredith says... Food safety steps are going to apply no matter how large or small your gathering is. The only thing that might differ are, you know, the quantities of food. But not the food poisoning problems that could happen if those foods are not prepared and handled properly. And now come the expected bad football puns. Uh, right, Meredith? Yeah, we've, we've had our, our, our fun share of football puns yeah. <laughs> in the years we've been doing a Super Bowl campaign. So in the kitchen, if you are the quarterback... If you're cooking chicken wings or any other kind of chicken, you want to make sure your chicken is cooked to a safe and internal temperature of 165 degrees Fahrenheit as measured by that food thermometer. And if you don't, then of course... The penalty flag is down. Meredith says if you don't get that chicken up to 165 degrees, any bacteria in it or on it could survive and multiply. And she says you need to get that poultry to 165, any poultry. Ground beef, 160 degrees. Steaks, roast chops, 140 with a three-minute rest time. But undercooking's not the biggest infraction on Super Bowl Sunday, is it? So I'd say the biggest mistake is definitely leaving food foods out for way too long. Now, as they play, the football players have a constant eye on the clock. And of course, at the end of each half, so right after two minute warning. But Meredith says in food safety, it's the two hour warning. If you leave perishable items, wings, salsas, slices of meat for sandwiches, if you leave them at room temperature longer than two hours, bacteria inside or on them from the air, from people's hands, can multiply very quickly. And the usual Super Bowl gathering, of course, is not two hours, it's three to four hours long. You've got the pregame. First half, halftime with Rihanna. Then you've got the second half, and then the postgame. So during the Super Bowl... Paying attention to the timing that food is out is super important. She says we need to keep hot foods hot, cold foods cold some way or other, or at least replace foods that have been out at room temperature before the two-hour warning. And that way... There is no foul. No flags on the play. Let me add one more rule. If you insist on wearing that team football helmet to the party, take it off when you're actually eating. It's very hard to eat with that thing on. Very messy, too. It is kind of difficult to do that. <laughs> yes. If you have food safety questions other than that, call the Meat and Poultry Hotline. Here's the number 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. And guess what? As far as this segment, it's over. It's over. Enjoy the game, though. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm going to blow this one dead. Dad, I resent that. 
You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it over to Brian German with this week's Almond Matters, brought to you by Valent. We're joined again by Todd Berkdahl, Field Market Development Specialist with Valent USA. And now that we're here closing out the first full week of February, uh, Todd, in your work with growers and the orchards uh, you're visiting, uh, what are you seeing out there in terms of development and uh, where we're at with Bloom on the way? I'd say in the middle of next week, there's some early stuff that's starting to, you know, uh, show a few flowers here and there down in the South Valley. But for the most part, things are still waking up, but they're waking up pretty rapidly. It's been colder in the mornings, you know, colder at night, colder in the morning. So we get a couple of warm days and everything's going to pop as far as bloom goes. Yeah. So that's that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> And as part of that, as growers are prepping for bloom, uh, I know you've got materials available that can maybe um, help maximize that that bloom window, right? Yeah, we have uh, a plant growth regular called Retain. It's uh, basically it's an ethylene blocker, so it helps the flowers stay viable longer, uh, increases the pollination period. Uh, timing is pretty critical to getting this product on on the early side of bloom. I'd say around thirty to. 40% where the trees are blooming. That's what you need to make the application. It's pretty simple. It's uh, one pouch for 100 gallons and then uh, spray it on the trees. Actually, the aerial application is even better because then you get the timing absolutely you know, dialed in. Uh, ground applications tend to take, you know, maybe take a few days to get across the field and the progression of bloom has gone forward on you and you missed that window. So I, I really... I'm a promoter of aerial application for retainers. There's nothing out there to intercept except the flowers at that time. So you get pretty good coverage with aerial application as well. And the data we've done in the past shows uh, on par with ground applications for yield boost. But timing is really critical. Getting it on, you know, on the earlier portion of bloom, not on the latter part. If you get past 60, 70% bloom, I'd say you probably... You might get some benefit out of it, but not the, not the not the bang for the buck that you'll get out of it by putting it on in the early part of bloom. Gotcha. And um, now with the amount of moisture that's been out in the orchards in the uh, past month or so, now with bloom on the horizon, what are some thoughts or uh, concerns related to um, the potential for fungal disease? I mean, yeah, you can, you know, the blossom blight, monolinea, there's always uh, moisture breed, you know, it's the environment. So part of the disease triangle. You get the environment right, and the disease is typically there already in sporic form. You get the host, so put the right environment there, and you have a propensity for disease, definitely. So, you know, if it doesn't rain between now and the bloom period, I think uh, that pressure's come off a little bit. Still moist out there. There's a lot of moisture in the ground. That's good. That's a good thing for everybody. Some guys would probably put on a petal fall spray. You know, if we have rain, definitely we need to put we need to put something out there for protection. But if there's no rain in the forecast, then uh, could probably do a petal fall spray and get by with it. 
Yeah, I believe there's uh, some rain in the forecast over the weekend for uh, some parts of California. So uh, that might uh, maybe increase the level of uh, concern there as it relates to fungal pathogens. Yeah, it, it can definitely, you know, bring more pressure as far as environment that's conducive to disease development. Uh, there's a lot of fungicides out there for uh, blossom blight. I like to stay away from the triazoles and go with other products and keep the triazoles for later on. Quashes, you know, I like to keep quash for alternaria later in the season, April, May, June. But there's a lot of other good fungicides you can put on at bloom. It can keep the uh, pathogens away. Back in, mostly blossom blight, monolinea species. Very good. Anything else uh, growers might want to keep in mind here um, as we head into bloom? Yeah, watch your PTB traps, uh, peach tree borer traps, because that petal fall application, it might be a good idea to put some, some dipel in the tank to curtail their activity, take out any newly emerging larvae. So once the right through bloom and then right at the end of bloom, petal fall, when the petals are falling off on the ground, the leaves are starting to push out. That's when you put the dipel on. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The produce safety rule doesn't include all nuts. Not all nut growers have to worry about fecal contamination and produce safety risks under the produce safety rule. Don Stuckel with the Produce Safety Alliance says although pistachio and walnut growers must follow the standards for growing, harvesting, packing, and holding of produce for human consumption under the produce safety rule, he says... Almonds are not being enforced under produce safety rule. There's a, there's a policy of enforcement discretion that, um, that means that the inspectors will not be visiting almond orchards. FDA publicized and wrote a policy of enforcement discretion that says that they will not be uh, enforcing the produce safety rule on the almond crops. The nut that is formally excluded from the produce safety rule is um, is pecans. So that's uh, that's also important to the pecan growers of California. To look at the produce safety rule in detail and to find out more information on the Produce Safety Alliance, you can visit cals.cornell.edu backslash produce safety alliance. One reason that USDA is forecasting a 21% drop in net cash income for farmers this year is because of government payments declining 34, a little over 34% year over year. Big drop. This from USDA's chief economist, Seth Meyer. He says this is a couple of years in a row now for direct government payments declining. Meyer says the payments surrounding the pandemic are coming to a halt. Plus, with high commodity prices, 
we see payments related to commodity prices decline as well too, right? So some of those payments that fluctuate with commodity prices, they're shrinking to quite low levels here and expected for 2023. Total direct government payments to producers estimated to be $10.2 billion this year. It was $15.6 billion last year and over $27 billion in 2021. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Applications are still being accepted for the 2023 Blue Diamond Growers Foundation Scholarship. Some of the requirements for the scholarship are that applicants must currently live in an almond-growing region of California, must have a 3.3 GPA or higher, and must intend to pursue a college major in an ag-related field with a specific emphasis on plant and crop-related majors. The scholarship is available to applicants entering any year of a four-year degree program. Recipients will be selected by the Scholarship Committee, which has been appointed by the Board of Directors. Applications will need to be submitted by March 31st, and applicants who have applied and not previously been awarded a Blue Diamond Growers Foundation Scholarship may reapply. More information about the opportunity is available under the Scholarship Program tab at bluediamondgrowers.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. The Ag Department's new farm income forecast for 2023 says the farm sector as a whole will see net cash income down from last year's record high by almost 21 percent. But many analysts are quick to point out almost any year in connection to 2022 is going to look less favorable. Uh, True. USDA's chief economist Seth Meyer told us we have to look at this new forecast not as a farm income disaster at all. Yes, it is declining relative to last year. Yes, receipts are falling. Yes, government payments are falling. Yes, input prices continue to rise, but it's still a better than the long-run average farm income year. Meyer says this is not a case of asking is the cup half full or half empty. The glass is three-quarters full. It's still a quite good year for farm income. And he says producer margins may be squeezed, and so... We're tightening the belt here a little bit. Still got plenty of room. And Meyer says the farm sector will make it through the year. Still in pretty good shape. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Many growers in the Monterey area that were impacted by flooding issues are expecting a 45- to 60-day delay to normal production timelines. Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau, Norm Groot, explained that many growers are waiting to complete testing requirements as part of overall food safety compliance. However, even as the overall damage continues to be tallied, there were many areas of the county that were not hit quite as hard with flooding and are able to move forward with normal planting. We have a lot of fields here that were not impacted by flooding or standing water, and so a lot of those fields will still continue with their first plantings and can move forward with their planting schedules at this point. So it's hard to say what that's going to mean to the marketplace, but obviously with 20,000 acres impacted now, um, it probably is a little bit of a delay that we're going to see in those first plantings here in February and probably early March. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. USDA forecasts for 2023 crop cash receipts and some expected hikes in expenses. Spiro Stefanu, the administrator of USDA's Economic Research Service, with a review of USDA's cash receipt forecasts for several crops. Crop cash receipts are going to go down uh, nearly $9 billion dollars. We're looking at soybeans going down the most by about 10.6%, followed by corn is looking at drop of 7.1%. 
gotten nearly 5%. Fruits, about 3% drop. And vegetables and melons are going to hit about 11% drop. Stephanie goes on to explain some of the farm production expenses that are expected to rise this year. Interest expenses. Interest expenses are going up 22.4%. Their livestock and poultry purchases, those are expected to go up nearly 14%. And that's actually the biggest dollar increase, livestock and poultry purchases. Labor costs are going up as well. Total expenses are projected to go up 4.1% in 2023. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.